Welcome to Bright Now, a podcast about parenting and educating talented kids, sponsored by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth. I'm your host, Jonathan Plucker, the Julian C. Stanley Endowed Professor of Talent Development at CTY and Johns Hopkins University. In season three, we were very fortunate to have Dr. Jeff Smith join us from New Zealand to share his thoughts on listeners' assessment questions. Today, we have him as a guest on this special bonus episode of Bright Now to talk about one of his newest books. In addition to his educational assessment expertise, Professor Smith is also one of the world's experts on the psychology of art and aesthetics. Having served as a consultant to the Metropolitan Museum of Art for 18 years, where he founded their Office of Research and Evaluation, he has worked with over 30 cultural institutions internationally, including the Guggenheim, the Museum of Modern Art, the Art Institute of Chicago, and New Zealand's National Museum. He is a founding editor of the journal Psychology of Aesthetics, Creativity, and the Arts, Dr. Smith is a fellow of the American Psychological Association and was awarded the Rudolf Arnheim Award for career contributions to the psychology of the arts from the American Psychological Association. He has also received the Gustav Fechner Award for distinguished contributions in empirical aesthetics from the International Association for Empirical Aesthetics in 2016. He is also the co-editor of the Cambridge Handbook of the Psychology of Aesthetics and the arts. Jeff has just completed a book that I suspect will be of great interest to those who are passionate about art, art history, creativity, and lots of other topics. The book's on the bad boys of art, and the title is aptly Scoundrels, Cads, and Other Great Artists, and it's published by Roman and Littlefield. Jeff details the scurrilous lives of great scoundrels like Caravaggio, Whistler, and Remington. The book is written for people who are nervous about their ability to appreciate art, who fear that they aren't doing it right when they look at art. It is written with a light tone and has a hundred color illustrations. I have been fortunate to read a couple chapters before the book was published, and it is absolutely fascinating. So I thought it would be great to have Dr. Smith on for this bonus episode to talk about artistic scoundrels and creativity and talk about the book some more. Jeff, welcome back to Bright Now. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me on, Jonathan. So, Jeff, why this book? You're an incredibly productive scholar. You're doing so many fascinating things. This is a really cool book, but like, where did the idea come from? Well, as you know, I spent 18 years at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. A lot of it kind of eavesdropping on visitors and folks who were looking at it, and a lot of it doing some fairly rigorous research on it. And as I learned more and more about artists, I tended to gravitate toward those who had lives that were really fascinating in one fashion or another. And when I would take people around the Met or other museums on tours, I would have the opportunity to talk about some of these people. And I found that those were always the ones that my visitors, that my guests had the most interest in. And and so I've been around a long time, Jonathan. And so as opposed to writing something For my scholarly colleagues, I thought, why don't I write something for the general public instead? And so I put forward this proposal to Roman and Littlefield, and they liked it a lot. I got my wonderful university, the University of Otago, to give me a sabbatical and say, yep, go ahead and write that book. That would be great. And so the 
these things came together and I got to spend a year exploring these people's lives and, and writing about it. And I have to say it was probably the most enjoyable year of my career putting this book together. One thing that I really like about it is it is so readable. Uh, the various people that you've brought together. Now, like I've seen a couple of the chapters, but I just devoured them. I thought it was, I mean, for all the reasons that you just talked about, Jeff, it just, it's fascinating kind of just to peek behind the curtain, right? And it gives you, I think, a much deeper appreciation for what they did and why they did it. But with that in mind, I want to talk about purely for selfish reasons, someone specifically that you and I have talked about before, which is Whistler, who I think is just, I mean, he is the definition of a cad. When I think of Whistler, I think he's a cad. One of the things that I think was most fascinating about him is that he did not suffer fools in to any degree and anyone who criticized him even in the slightest in his mind was a fool can you talk about whistler a little bit and sort of what his life was like well whistler had an incredibly interesting life his father built railroads and was in demand internationally to build railroads and they lived in st petersburg russia for a while until some plague of some sort hit there. And his father sent the family back to England, but he stayed there, caught whatever the disease was and died. And so Whistler went from being wealthy and privileged to, they had to move back to Connecticut to a farm and, and he ended up taking care of chicken and, and pigs and things like that. And so life was kind of rough for him. His mother decided that he should go to West Point, as his father had, and they had political connections. As a matter of fact, the president of the United States at the time recommended him for West Point. He went to West Point and within two years had himself expelled. And his story at West Point is amazing. I mean, he was always late for drills. He was always late for class. And he was eventually thrown out by none other than Robert E. Lee the American Confederate Civil War leader, he appealed to Lee and to Jefferson Davis, who was also at West Point at the time, but they, they just tossed him. And so then he went to work for the Navy, making etchings of shorelines, maps and etchings of shorelines. But he, he insisted on putting little whales and mermaids and things like that into the etchings, which, um, yeah. <laughs> which which wasn't really greatly appreciated. And and again, he was never on time. As he put it once, the um, I think it was the Coast Guard he was working for, said the problem wasn't that he was late, but that the Coast Guard opened too early. And so he was fired from that as well. And at that point, he went off to Europe to seek fame and fortune and really developed his career while he was there. He's in England. He's in France. He's going back and forth. He's a young man. He's an artistic talent. He's got a beautiful young woman who is his companion named Joe Hiffernan. He is in the cafes and the bistros in the evenings. It's la vie bohème. I mean, he's leading the bohemian life. He's painting during the day, carousing during the evening. He hangs out with the famous, with the literati. It's just an amazing, amazing life. He produces amazing works. And he battles with everybody, Jonathan. He makes friends easily and he loses them even more easily because, as you say, 
he does not suffer fools gladly. One of my favorite things is he was really good friends with Oscar Wilde, the, the poet and bon vivant. Wilde was actually quite a bit younger than Whistler, but they were very good friends. But at one point in their relationship, Whistler decided that Wilde was stealing Whistler's material because Whistler wrote about art a lot also. And he decided that he saw too much of his work appearing as Wilde's work a little bit after he would publish it. They're in a party once, and Whistler says something very, very clever. And Oscar Wilde says, I wish I had said that. And Whistler responds, oh, you will, Oscar, you will, which is one <laughs> of my favorite lines. And he was just absolutely brilliant, sued people all the time, was being sued all the time, and he just delighted in being outrageous. I mean, he even wore a cape sometimes. He was always dressed as a dandy, wore a monocle, always had a cane, and, and he had a white tuft of hair right in the middle of his forehead up top. And he, you put this whole package together, he was five foot three, which in addition to everything else, just... I never yeah. knew that he was, whenever you see a painting of him, he's painted in a way that makes him look really tall and thin, but... 5'3 is not tall. He looks lanky in all of those paintings, but he was, uh, (laughs) he was, oh, and at one time in his life, his brother was a surgeon for the Confederacy during the war and escaped right at the end of the war to England. And not long after that, he and his brother and a couple of other guys took a steamer to Chile where they were going to sell torpedoes to the Chilean Navy as part of some war that Chile was in. And while he is there, he paints some amazing paintings in Valparaiso and and, and in other areas. So just an absolutely fascinating, fascinating and scurrilous life. One thing you very nicely sent me this chapter because you know I'm just fascinated by his life. And one thing that I took away from it was that we know that a motivation to be creative, a motivation to be artistic, creative self-efficacy, if you will, like believing that you can make creative contributions is so important for sustained long-term creativity in one's life. You can read stories about Whistler and say, oh, you know, he's just a fascinating guy, but boy, he was pig-headed. But in some ways, it was that pig-headedness of just, I will keep running into this wall until the wall gets out of my way. That was his attitude to life. And in some ways, that's kind of what drove him. That's kind of my takeaway, is that it was all about motivation. He had such a high self-regard that he just kept plugging away no matter what anyone told him. And, you know, many of his paintings that were just savaged by critics, but he believed that they were wrong. And history's kind of proven him right there. So what's your take on sort of the takeaway from someone like a Whistler? It's very interesting you bring that up. All eight of these people, one that I've got eight primary people in the book, actually nine, because we've got Pollock and Pollock's wife, Lee Krasner, as one chapter. But all of them were pig-headed in a way. All of them were incredibly determined to do what they wanted to do. And each of them, to a degree, changed art 
as a result of what they accomplished. If you look at them and you look at what they say about their own works and how they contrast them to other painters at the time, they're always saying, this is the way art should be. Courbet was saying, this is the way art should be. You know, it shouldn't be romantic. It shouldn't be classicist. It should be realist, although he didn't like the word realist. Caravaggio dramatically changed art of his time. Jackson Pollock, abstract expressionist, really changed the nature of painting during his time. But yeah, Whistler, massive ego, I think, is really what you see in Whistler and in a lot of these people. A complete willingness to disregard the rules of society and the rules of painting and of art in general. Whistler was key in the uh, art for art's sake movement and would say of his paintings, don't read into the storyline. This isn't a painting about anything other than what this painting is. Look at the colors, look at the relationships, which is why he gave them names after musical movements. All right. Symphonies, Mm. arrangements, nocturnes, etc. Well, Jeff, we really appreciate you coming on today to share some of these stories and talk about the book. And thank you for being a guest on another episode of Bright Now. Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. The title of Jeff's new book is Scoundrels, Cads, and Other Great Artists, and I'll include information about the book in this episode's show notes. See you in season four. That's it for this episode of Bright Now. Tell us what topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes by emailing your suggestions to brightnowpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy Bright Now, Support us by sharing the podcast with friends on social media, and be sure to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Right Now is produced by Jonathan Pucker, Tracy Guerin, and Trisha Schellenbach. Audio production by Iris Starkangelo and the team at Clean Cuts, a Three C's company. Our score was written by Austin Coughlin from Noise Distillery. Special thanks to CTY's Interim Executive Director, Amy Shelton. Bright Now is underwritten by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth, a nonprofit dedicated to identifying and developing the talents of academically advanced students worldwide. Find us on the web at cty.jhu.edu and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.